Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. It is the Bama Online Podcast. It is T. Watts and T.R. on March the 3rd, 2021. Travis Schreier, Senior Analyst for BamaOnline.com, joined by my partner in crime for all these years, nearly 20 years now, site publisher Tim Watts and myself. We've been doing this thing at BamaOnline.com. And Tim, as I bring you on here, continued congratulations in order for I guess it's the eldest of the Watts brood, Cade, with he's, the commitment. He's the second. He's okay. I also have a uh, sophomore in college, but yeah, Cade committed to Lawson State last week. Um, of course, he decided four hours <laughs> before Ty Simpson goes. So I think, as you text me, he's trying to steal his thunder. Yeah. Uh, so I was trying to help him out. So coach, really good over there, and. Um, some, you know, some of the guys at Alabama also recommended Coach Lewis at Lawson. So we're excited. You know, it's it's baseball, so you want to go where you can get on the field. Yeah, that's a great route, man. Um, we talked about this too, and 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 having one of our own that that went the junior college route for athletics and her sport, it was basketball, and it's a path that I just continue to preach to young people. You know, especially as we get past some of the signing dates. You know, and you understand there's some young folks that had, like the rest of us throughout our athletic careers. We had always envisioned that big day, that signing day, uh, and it involves our dream schools and those things. But, you know, sometimes that that le- that path less traveled will get you where you want to go. And uh, I've got all the all the kudos in the world to Cade for for going that route. And in baseball. It really leaves everything on the table. I mean, potentially, you know, one year into the four year, two years to the four year, um, a lot of different routes you can go from there. Such a, you know, such a cutthroat business. When you get to that higher level, you've got, if you just look at the SEC, everything's so competitive that some of those guys sign and only make it a year, you know, and end up at, uh, uh, you know, end up at a junior college. So I think getting the reps and getting all that, and he had some, um, some bigger schools looking at him and stuff, but I think getting the reps and getting on the field and, uh, you know, also he just really connected. Uh, he's just sort of that one of those kids that feels which coach he's going to be with. And he really liked Blake Lewis at Lawson. And he told me that early on and Blake, you know, came out and saw him and showed him that attention. So yeah, I agree with the junior college. I think to me, the biggest thing and uh, at any sport is playing. Because you can't be seen if you're not playing. That goes for anybody. They mm-hmm. will find you. You know what I mean? We've seen guys uh, over the years come from, you know, you remember Jay Miller, who was a 
baseball, basketball, football standout, committed to Stanford and ended up signing baseball with the Marlins, later walked on at Alabama. We see guys that we expect to go high, Justin Woodall, um, Maurice Williams. Remember, a lot of people talk about him baseball-wise. Uh, the running back, what's his, the running back, Ely, that's at Ole Miss right now. Those Jerry guys, and Ely, yeah. Those guys were expected, Mo Hampton at LSU, those guys were expected to go really high and didn't, and then you turn around and you see a guy like Jay Miller, and I ran into Stanford basketball coach Mike Montgomery at an event, and we were talking about Jay. He said, hell, if we didn't only play baseball, we'd offer him in that, in that too. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't even know that was an option. So, you know, you looked up. And Jay had signed with the Marlins, and he was gone. So baseball is a fickle. Uh, uh, you can any you could take any route to get where you want to go. Absolutely, and I think you hit on it too. Getting on the field, being on the field, and at the junior college level, I, I know this from personal experience too. Um, the reps, the number of reps a kid can get in baseball, and I know for sure in basketball. Uh, it, it's at least twice, I would guess, as what they would get going initially to a four-year school. Um, it, it's, it, it is literally uh, – the JC practice rules and the workout rules, they're not as stringent as NCAA rules. And certainly the monitoring of what they have isn't as stringent as it is with the NCAA. So right. you can get two years of reps – in some instances at the junior college level for what you would get in one at a four-year school. So the opportunity to develop and advance and improve very much there. And we're obviously going to be big fans of Lawson state baseball moving forward. And I'll end it with this. We'll move on. If junior college baseball was good enough for my favorite Alabama baseball player of all time, Roberto Vaz, uh, it's good enough for everybody. Berto Vaz, man. He was unbelievable. Hey, let's get into some hoops talk, Tim, on this Wednesday following Alabama's 70-58 to win over the Auburn Tigers on Tuesday evening at Coleman Coliseum. The final appearance of the collegiate careers over there for the likes of Herb Jones and John Petty. It wasn't always pretty. Uh, it was a struggle at times, Tim. But once again, this team does it on the defensive end and manages to win despite not scoring in the 80s, which we had sort of come to expect from Alabama men's basketball. That hasn't been the case of as of late. Uh, but in that second half, when Auburn had cut it to a five-point game, and you gotta got to give credit to Auburn for that because no Sharif Cooper, you figured that probably wouldn't be a possibility at that stage in the game on Tuesday night, but that is exactly what the case is happened to be, but, you know, the veterans stepped up. Petty stepped up, hit a uh, big three coming out of a timeout, and and here's Alabama now at 15-2 and two as the SEC regular season champs in conference play. Yeah, I mean, you watch that game. It's sort of been what the, you know, what the norm's been the last, you know, last few games, last four or five games. I think Alabama, I don't want to say going through the motions because I don't believe that, but I think they're, 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 they're seeking a new challenge. I mean, they've been – comfortably in control of the SEC this entire year, uh, started out, um, just took over the conference and played, you know, lights out. So I think part of it is just hitting a little bit of a wall. Part of it is just, you know, finishing games, winning is all that matters. Um, but of course, going forward, everything gets more serious. I mean, everything you're in now, it's SEC tournament, win-loss, you're out. NCAA tournament, win-loss, you're out. So you're looking 
you know, um, you know, it, 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 the ultimate challenge is coming up. But yeah, you know, hats off to all those guys. Uh, Alex Reese, I mean, he was he was he was crying pretty hard at the end of that game, and um, you know, and you know, to me, that's always a reason. Like when I watch I watch these kids, and it's hard to me to be hypercritical when they give a hundred percent effort, which I think Alex Reese does, and I think Herb did, and you know, certainly Petty after you know him and him and uh, Nate Oates had a come to Jesus meeting. So, uh, you know, just hats off to guys that, you know, stayed in state, stayed local, didn't rush their way to the, to, to trying to go to professional basketball and sticking it out. I mean, a lot of guys didn't stick it out with this team and they stood here and they've been rewarded. I mean, it's a 20 win season, 15 and two in the sec. I don't know anybody that really would have predicted anything like that uh, for Alabama, not the 15 and two, not in this conference where you had, LSU, you had Kentucky, you had so many big name teams coming in. Um, and then you look up and, you know, it's Alabama and Arkansas, of course, you know, competing and some of the bigger names have fallen off. But yeah, hats off. I mean, this, this has been a great year for a basketball team and on the heels of a great football team. Absolutely. Uh, one of those rare duos in Southeastern Conference history that gets it done as conference champs, both in football and men's basketball in the same academic calendar year. You have to go back to the mid-70s for the last time that happened at the University of Alabama. We talk about the seniors and the veterans, but it continues to be some of the underclassmen that picked up the slack uh, on Tuesday night with an emphasis on Jaden Shackelford with the 23 points, five of nine from three. This is a guy who's been especially good over there off Bryant Drive, home games, especially in the league. Jaden Shackelford, I think he's had 50 combined in his last two home games over there. So, again, when we talk about the ceiling potentially for this team, when you look ahead to the NCAA tournament, and that's going to be a different deal in and of itself because it's going to be essentially in one sort of area of the country. You're not going to be bopping around to different pods, different regionals in this NCAA tournament, you're pretty much going to be right there in the greater Indianapolis area. Um, I guess one thing you do like is the depth of scoring options you have with this team, whether it's Petty, whether it's Shackelford, Herb Jones, Quinterly off the bench. Um, but is there a concern when you consider uh, the, 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 the pinnacle for this team, Tim, uh, when you look at some of the offensive struggles they've had, specifically from three here of late. Yeah, you know, in Primo, sort of, you know, I still expect, you know, he sort of hit that freshman wall, it seems like, and you still expect him to come out of it. 0 for 3 from 3 last night. It's too good of a player to keep doing that. Maybe a little bit of uh, rest. You know, that's a grueling schedule Alabama just played. Everybody that played the schedule um who actually had to play the games. That was a pretty grueling schedule at a time like this. So I think it can wear down on you physically and mentally. And a lot of those guys were, you know, you know, traveling and playing at a, at a rate they're not used to from being in high school. But I think the guy, you know, you got to have guys like Herb's going to give you, he's going to impact the game regardless every night. He's going to have steals. He's going to have rebounds. He's going to have assists. You don't necessarily have to have points out of Herb Jones to win, but you definitely have to have, points out of out of primo and petty and you know quinterly and um shackleford so alabama's going to go as far as those shooters will carry them they don't have to be all three pointers they don't have to they need to be up closer to that 40 percent of the three pointers i feel especially as the t- competition gets tougher and you still got to hope that bruner's really 
going to play his way back into the shape. And every game he plays and every practice he gets is a step in that direction because he was doing so well before the injury, but he was down a little bit. So he's still playing his way in. So you really need this team to click at the right time, which they did earlier in the year when they needed a big push, when they needed a big run, when they needed to beat LSU and Kentucky and all those teams on the road. They they came together. So you need them to come together again. So, you know, just sort of figure it out and take it from there. But, you know, from a ceiling standpoint, I think it's definitely a Sweet 16 team. And having watched the NCAA tournament religiously uh, for my whole life, really, Anything inside the Sweet 16 is a grab bag. I mean, I've seen some of the best Alabama teams, you know, beaten by teams I thought they should have won. I've seen upsets every year. So it's really a grab bag when you get to that Sweet 16. It is. And I think your points about the scoring load and kind of the expectations for these guys on an individual basis are good ones with Herb, really. It's as much about fouls and turnovers, isn't it, with him? That seems to be the two things that could be a bugaboo for him. As you said, 10 points, nine rebounds against Auburn on Tuesday night, six assists. Those are all really good things. And he impacts the game in so many different ways, as we know. Um, Defensively, what I like about this team is that you don't feel like they're spread thin like even a year ago. A year ago, you felt like if Herb wasn't on just about one through five for an opposing team, you didn't like the defensive matchup for Alabama. This year, you've got guys like Keon Ellis that have come into the program. Uh, Shackelford has tried to up his game as a defender. Uh, They don't have width uh, and real bulk and size in the post, but they seem to hang in there pretty good, Tim, on the boards and And also, you know, for the most part, hanging in as far as points in the paint are concerned. Yeah, you're going to get some of that, especially with Bringer coming back and Gary giving you some valuable minutes. Um, You know, you hope to get, you know, a little bit more on those boards and be athletic and challenge, you know, on the boards. I think you're looking at Gary had four rebounds in 11 minutes, which is a nice effort. Bringer only had one. Again, I hope that comes, you know, a little bit further on later. And, of course, Herb had seven. So, yeah, I think they're going to have to be. I mean, they are. You know, this team is what Nate Oates and his staff wanted it to be. It's a team of fast-paced guys. you got plenty of shooters. you got athletes. You're a little undersized in the post, but those guys can run. So they are what you wanted from your roster for the most part. So now you just got to get these guys playing on all cylinders. And, again, they're going to – you know, Petty's going to make shots. You know, last night was another example. Only 4 of 10 from the field, 3 of 8 from – um, three-point line, but again, they cut it to five, come out the timeout, he hits a three, and that was sort of the end of the game. Uh, they just rode out from there. So you have him um, is going to make shots, but Primo's the guy that's a little bit concerning. He's had several games sort of off. I think he's got to find his shot and you know pick him back up. Kind of hoped second go-around with Auburn would be a little bit of an elixir for Josh Primo because he lit up the Tigers pretty good in that first meeting. Back in January, it didn't happen uh, in that second game with Auburn on Tuesday night, but he still obviously got the skill set and the tools needed to break out at any time. Something else you like, too, right? Taking care of the basketball as you move deeper into the month of March. Alabama with just seven turnovers, just two in the first half against Auburn on Tuesday night. Meanwhile, those active hands and that commitment to defense and year two under Nate Oates continued to show up in the form of 13 steals for Alabama. Uh, and again, no Sharif Cooper for Auburn. So 
that obviously makes a difference as well. Auburn's still a dangerous team. They've still got talent. They just came off beating a ranked Tennessee team who certainly has. Mm -hmm. So that's not – and, again, you add in the Alabama-Auburn. You know, Bruce Pearl is a good coach. You add in the Alabama-Auburn angle to this. That's not not a cakewalk of a game in – in uh, any shape or form. We've seen that game get crazy several times. So I think when you play less than your best, beat your, you know, your biggest, your in-state rival, cover the spread. I think it was 10, 11 points. So I feel like they did what they had to do, like you said, to start with. It just wasn't very pretty. And we've seen Alabama's prettiest basketball. We've seen them dressed up and ready to go to the dance. We saw it against Kentucky and LSU, and it's fantastic. So it's a little bit harder seeing them you know, a little bit rougher in the morning before they hit the shower and brush the teeth. So, <laughs> but a win is a win, you know. Get, you know, again, Al Davis. I don't know if he's the first one to say it, but everybody's, you know, said it best. Just win, win. Baby. Yeah, but especially you know when you consider the, the the sort of recent and extended history of Alabama men's basketball in the month of February into March. It's amazing that we've reached a point where you can kind of pick apart wins when you would have taken wins of any kind here over the last few years as you headed down the stretch of some some regular seasons. Hey, we're going to get into some recruiting angles as it relates to football on today's program. Uh, we're going to talk about Ty Simpson, his recent commitment to the Alabama Crimson Tide, the five-star quarterback from Martin, Tennessee. We'll talk about an in-state prospect of note, a five-star in his own right, who I guess uh, Tim has his uh, announcement date set for March the 13th. And then a little bit later in the show, we're going to go down memory lane with that 2009 recruiting class at the University of Alabama. We'll also have the roundtable mailbag for you later in the program. But let's get back to Ty Simpson, Tim. I know we did the breaking pod on Friday, immediately following Simpson's announcement for the Alabama Crimson Tide. What has sort of been the aftermath of of that commitment? Has it been sort of low-key? Was it sort of expected by the time Ty uh, made that announcement around 2 o'clock Central on Friday? Uh, what's What's been the fallout since Simpson uh, threw his name towards the Crimson Tide? Yeah, I think it's big. I mean, you know how it is covering this so many years. That quarterback can lead um, – a lot of people. It's, he's certainly going to get eyes on you. And again, it's not a great quarterback year. Quinn Ewers, who's the Texas kid, committed to Ohio State's probably the number one quarterback. But right behind him is Simpson. I know Alabama had Simpson right there in the top two with Ewers. Clemson had him number one on their board. He was he was ahead of everybody else. So um, this is a guy a lot of people really liked and had, you know definitely had a lot of talent. I tell you what's interesting to me is Tennessee has a, has probably the best year of in-state football I've ever seen for Tennessee recruiting-wise. And a lot of big-name guys like Walter Nolan, a lot of big-name guys who know Ty Simpson, and this could have a ripple effect with, with those guys. I mean, we've already seen a, a wide receiver that already liked Alabama, Barry Brown from Nashville, Tennessee. When he He's going to have that familiarity with his quarterback, he's going to know who his quarterback is. And for a lot of these guys, it's you know, it's not it's not necessarily going to matter, you know, which quarterback Alabama's getting. You got wide receivers that are coming to Alabama to play and following the all the great players that 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 have won the first round after them. But for guys where you could get a little extra boost with a Walter Nolan who's a five star, 
uh, highly rated defensive lineman from Tennessee. I mean, these are these are big steps that you could get. It's interesting when you look at Ty Simpson, and you've been doing this for 20-plus years now. He is listed, I guess, 6'2", 185. And it, there was a time not too long ago where pretty much if those were the measurables for a quarterback, a, a specific quarterback prospect, his ceiling as a as a ranked player might be a four, right? We've kind of changed the way I guess we look at quarterbacks based on how they play the game now, what's asked of them uh, in these offenses in 2021. Uh, talk about that a little bit, Tim, just sort of the, the physical makeup of quarterbacks now compared to a few years ago even and how we're maybe not as quick to judge based on measurables, which when you look at Ty Simpson, there's nothing wrong with 6'2", 185. But, you know, seven, eight, ten years ago, Peyton Manning, Ryan Leaf, those guys 6'4", 6'5", 230 or so. No, there's no doubt when you look at those guys when they were – everybody wanted them 6'4 or taller. There was a completely different mindset um, the bigger, the better. Heck, I remember you remember uh, Dan McGuire, Mark McGuire's brothers, like a six seven quarterback. <laughs> I think went first round back in the day to the Seattle uh, uh, Seahawks. So yeah, they always was that 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 you know taller is better. You see over the line and all that stuff. But I think you've seen guys come along since then. Drew Brees certainly is not a big guy, um, and even now you've got Russell Wilson, you've got. Um, Kyler Murray, you know, Tua, you know, Tua is not over six foot two. You got a lot of these guys, Baker Mayfield. And I think it comes down to now is simply with the way the NFL is or way even college football is. You want a guy that can make a play off schedule. You want somebody that can not have to just run the script. Because right. you don't know where that band is coming from. You don't know where that breakdown on the offensive line. Your wide receiver could slip. You've got to make adjustments. You've got to go off script. you got to run left, right, back, forward. You got to move around. You got to be athletic. And I think Ty Simpson has all of that stuff. In fact, he is, his highlight tape looks a little bit like a fire drill. It's like they're trying to see what he can do under intense pressure. Cause the, you know, the, the guy's catching a lot of heat. Um, and you can see him running left. He has a play. He runs left. He throws the ball 45, 50 yards. Uh, saw him last year on Twitter, found a clip that's a year old. He's throwing a ball almost effortlessly 70 yards. So I don't think size is important anymore when you look at it. I think the importance is can you make plays? Can you move? Can you keep your head up? You know, I think Mac Jones was great for bringing back those old school big quarterbacks, you know, those guys who aren't super athletic as far as running. He did a great job, but I think he's going to be the outlier more than the norm when you look forward, you know, when you're looking at the first round in the in the drafts. I mean, even this year, Trevor Lawrence is the guy that can run it. Justin Fields can run it, run it. The North Dakota State kid can run it. Wilson from BYU, they can all pull it down. You would consider them athletes uh, over Mac. But what Mac does have is he's got that crazy Fred Astaire footstep footwork in the pocket where he is a maestro. I mean, he's a one-two-one kind of guy avoiding a rush, stepping up in the pocket. We saw that so many times, and he's definitely a guy that can go off script. So, yeah, I think you're a little bit of the norm is, to me, is if they're an athlete, 5'11", 6'4", I think I think that's enough if they can make plays and, and uh, you know, think fast under fire. Yeah, extending plays and then making throws that, again, not too long ago would have been 
would have been tagged as cardinal sins among quarterbacks. And a lot of those are off-platform, not necessarily set or stepping into throws like you would conventionally uh, at the quarterback position. Uh, a lot of the barriers, I guess, in terms of we used to like to keep our quarterbacks in a real small box, didn't we? Uh, and then came along guys like Aaron Rodgers, Brett Favre, <laughs> Russell Wilson, of course, Patrick Mahomes now. Patrick Mahomes is doing some things on a weekly basis, and, and Aaron Rodgers is still doing them in yeah. his 30s. That the, the old school quarterback coaches, you know, they just cringe when they watch some of this stuff. And that used to be, that wasn't that long ago that, you know, even Nick yeah. Saban valued that, you know, you didn't see out, you know, it's one of the reasons you didn't see a lot of OJ Howard, a lot of bad stuff happens passing down those seams. You know, there's a lot of safeties. There's a lot of guys over the top, a lot easier to throw an interception, a tipped ball. So the sidelines were safer. Um, so we've seen that for a lot of years. And then you see Tua come in and, you know, you would see, and you saw the good and the bad, you saw the dude, the spinning interception and, you know, he would, you know, he, he would make mistakes, but I think we've realized that's okay. Brett Favre probably as much as anybody told us it was okay to make him. Don't worry about that one interception because I'm going to get you five TV TD. So don't worry about that. I think that Ex- probably has stepped in a lot. Yeah. Explosive plays. These coaches, they love them. And with the RPO coming into play and, you know, how you're able to conflict and, put defenders in tough spots, put them in two on one binds and and as a result really attack the middle of the field a lot of times. It's a totally different game. Looks like Ty Simpson fits into that game exceedingly well. Now when we look ahead for this Alabama recruiting class, when we're talking about the twenty twenty two group, um what are we thinking coming up here? I guess Emmanuel Henderson, the five-star running back from South Alabama, is that the next guy that's sort of up on the radar if you're an Alabama fan, Tim? I believe so. He's 10 days away um, from making his announcement. Really, really nice player um, who I like. A good kid. I'm not sure exactly where he's going to play. When you watch him, you know he's a really good athlete. He's got a lot of options when you look at him. You know, I sort of felt – see a sort of version of Kerryon Johnson who went to Auburn and Alabama liked as a safety. He wanted to play running back and went to Auburn. He's got that kind of athlete, sort of high cut, but I mean, dude can jump. He can run. He's could be a different kind of running back. He could be a slot receiver. Um, he could be a safety. I think this is a guy that could do just about anything he wants to do. Alabama's heavily involved. Um, I feel like Auburn's trailing there for sure um, with that new staff and, you know, pl- trying to play catch up. Georgia's, you know, made him a priority. So they would be in the mix somewhere too. But this would be another good early pickup for Alabama if they could get it. And again, you know, we've discussed it. I'm going to discuss it every week to make sure people hear me. But if Alabama's taking guys right now, that means they're very, very confident in what they're getting. Because they're, you know, obviously they're doing their due diligence and they do it every year. But the last two years and going into this being the third year, everything all the checks, all the boxes, they're really doing a very thorough job. So Emmanuel's a guy who I personally like as running back. I think a lot of people on a football team could be fighting him, you know, some one of them at safety, one of them at wide receiver, one of them at running back. I think he can pretty much play where he wants to. I love the carry on Johnson comp. Big fan of that guy. Uh yeah. really, really fun player to watch at Auburn and 
you know, his his body type, right? I guess Henderson's kind of that way at 6'1", 185, 190, sort of belied the the way in which Johnson played the position. I mean, that was a tough dude, probably to his own fault because he got hurt in the Alabama game, even though Auburn beat Alabama in that 2017 Iron Bowl. He took a big shot late in that game, ended up having to miss the SEC championship game, and that was pretty much that was pretty much it for that Auburn team in, yeah. in 2017. They just came off beating Georgia, right? Yeah, beat Georgia, and he was great. And yeah. yeah, just totally different, you know, team in the SEC championship game without him. So yeah, but he's a good, you know, good player, an in-state guy. Would be the highest-rated in-state guy who's committed. I think he's third in the state of Alabama. So um, big-time prospect Charles Kelly here does a good job of owning, you know, building relationships with kids. So you know, they've already got you know Robert Woodard, who's to me is one of the best inside linebackers in the nation. Who's committed? So that if they can get uh, Sanders, um, if they can get Henderson, they will have two of the top five players in the state, which is you know always a good start, especially when it's a really good year in state. Um, even though I think next year's better, but it's it's a really good year in state, especially at the top. We're going to take a quick break here on T Watts and TR as a part of the Bama Online Podcast. When we come back, we'll stick with recruiting, but it will be a trip on our time machine that we like to jump in from time to time. We'll go back to the 2009 Alabama football recruiting class. We'll do that with Tim Watts and a whole lot more when the Bama Online Podcast continues right after this. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The farmer's dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Back with more of a T. Watson TR program here on the Bama Online Podcast. It is March the 3rd, 2021. If you haven't already, how about a subscription to the Bama Online Podcast? Wherever you consume your podcast, you're going to find us right there. Stitcher, Google Play, Megaphone, you name it. It's the Bama Online Podcast. We would certainly appreciate a rating and a five-star, well, a five-star rating and a review while you're there. If you don't mind, that would help us out tremendously. And Tim, as we come back here, let's do it. Let's get into that 2009 recruiting class, which was ranked number three overall nationally. And when you look at this class really at the top, when you consider the five stars involved, it's very impressive because you got a couple right out the gate that went on to be first round picks. But then even in sort of the midsection of this 2009 class, you had a couple of first rounders. So five future first rounders in all as a part of this 2009 class. You had a couple of Heisman Trophy finalists. And again, it sort of all started right with a running back from Pensacola, Florida. Yeah, Trent Richardson, you know, he was that special player. You know, it's sort of it's sort of sad to me. Like when I talk to young kids, even in this business, they don't know how good Trent Richardson was. I mean, they, you know, they call him a bust and a lot of that stuff. And maybe in the NFL he was, but this guy was one of the best high school running backs anybody had ever seen. 
he was definitely in the same same mention of any other Leonard Fournay or any other big name uh, prospect. Went number two in the draft, was a Heisman runner-up. I mean, we all remember Trent and how great he did. Even his first year in the NFL was rushing close to 1,000 yards. So um, Trent was a huge deal, was a huge, huge get on the heels. Again, the 08 class, Julio in those class was unbelievable. It was it was fantastic, but this class sort of fell in line with some of the guys they didn't get in 08, some of the positions they didn't get, and, you know, Landon Trent, the number one running back in the country, I believe, or I guess he's listed as number two, but he, uh, you know, most considered him definitely better than Bryce Brown, but most considered him, I think, number one, and uh, getting him was a huge, huge get, and, you know, late in the process. He committed but still took visits. He's one of those guys and uh, there was a little bit of suspense there, although I think Alabama felt pretty comfortable where they sat for most of the most of class. Yeah, and Trent came right in and, of course, teamed with Mark Ingram in the 2009 season in which Ingram went on to win Alabama's first Heisman Trophy. But, you know, both those guys kind of forgotten in Ingram's big year and his Heisman Trophy was the fact that both those guys surpassed 100 rushing yards in that national championship game win over Texas out in the Rose Bowl. So, yeah, it was very immediate, the impact that Trent Richardson made uh, on that offense and at that running back position with, uh, you know, Mark Ingram kind of stepping in there for Glenn Coffey coming out of 2008. And uh, Trent Richardson, you also had Roy Upchurch in that 2009 backfield as a Nice complimentary piece, but uh, yeah, I'd say Trent was was as billed and was really 2010 is amazing when you think about it because your top three backs in 2010 were Mark Ingram, Trent Richardson, and Eddie Lacy. The other back in the 2009 class, Tim, just a guy by the name of Eddie Lacy. You know, the Alabama staff, you know, Burton Burns was, was great, like dealing with him and, and, and talking with some of these running backs because he was very honest. I mean, he's very direct, but he told me he thought Eddie was every bit as good as, as Trent. And that was a big statement because nobody else was saying that. It wasn't just coach talk either. He felt that um, that he was as good as Trent, was right there with Trent, was a huge get, was treated that way, was recruited that way. Um it's just amazing they were able to land both of those guys on the heels of landing, you know, Mark Ingram, who was already having great success when they were landing these guys. I mean, he was already showing you he was a feature back, Mark Ingram, that is. So to land these two guys was just huge. Now, was this when Lance had left Alabama initially <laughs> and there was some drama, I guess, related to Lance at Tennessee? with maybe Eddie Lacy and or Trent Richardson? Was it just one of those two or both those guys that Lance tried to get in with there late? No, Lance was recruiting Trent and Eddie Lacy. <laughs> and the story that was told to me is that Lance left in the middle of the night, went to Tennessee with Lane Kiffin. A um, little bit of surprise, it sounded like, to the Alabama staff. He went to Tennessee. Lane tried to get more involved with Eddie Lacy than he did Trent. And his recruiting angle was – hey, you're going to be the second guy behind Trent. I was in those recruiting meetings. People were saying that. The problem is it was Lance saying it because Lance didn't <laughs> lose Trent Richardson because he was his top prospect. But Lance knew to play that angle, went in there. I don't remember Trent. I know he tried with Trent. Uh, nothing really got off the ground. He tried harder with Eddie. That seemed the most likely of the two. 
Um, but yeah, that was a rather unique situation where you had a coach leaving and recruiting, going to you know the you know obviously Alabama's bigger rival, and uh, you know of course Lance did a great job at Alabama. Lane Kiffin came in and you know threw a lot of money at him, and there was a lot of promises made, and they were going to you know do great things, and um, we know how that turned out. But yeah, very yeah, Lane stayed a year. Yeah, I'm not sure he did even make it a year. He uh, just about yeah yeah. Uh, yeah, Lane was Lane was at Tennessee a year. Then he took the ESC job. It was quick. <laughs> yeah, it was like yeah. he had time to unpack. So, uh, yeah, no. big situation. Had those two running backs, and then yeah, you add Lance into the mix. And Lance is a smart recruiter. You know, Lance knows how to recruit. Some people will say, I don't really believe when coaches. You know, there's not really recruiting is kind of negative. You can't really negative recruit. You know, it's like if you're trying to get a girl and somebody else is trying to get a girl you're going to sort of say within reason what you can to impress her. I think recruiting is very similar in that. So, and again, the Alabama staff knew how big of a deal Eddie Lacy was um, in this situation. So it wasn't like they, he was being slept on, but it turned out to be two guys. I mean, Eddie had a great, but short NFL career. Um, certainly did some great, you know, everybody talked about his spin move and has had a lot of people emulating him. So two very unique careers. Four five stars in that 2009 class for Alabama, two on offense, two on defense. The second highest ranked overall signee for Alabama that year, Drake Kirkpatrick, the outstanding cornerback prospect from Gadsden City High School up there in northeast Alabama. Nico Johnson at the inside linebacker position, more from the southern part of the state there in Andalusia. Uh, Alabama, and then of course DJ Fluker, the big offensive lineman uh, from Foley. Uh, that program was pretty good to Alabama there, and about a two-year stretch, I'd say, with Julio Fluker and uh, Robert Lester kind of gets overlooked sometimes. But those were your four five stars, uh, Tim. And and when you look at first-round picks, three of those four were first-rounders, DJ, a first-rounder in the 2013 NFL draft, and Nico was a solid player. I remember Nico more as a situational starter, more of a base starter, but even Nico played in the NFL for a little bit. He did, and if you look, even the top, the thing that's a little bit different now is that Alabama's 08, 09 in-state class was really good. You look at the top-ranked guys when you go down this list, and you're seeing six of the top seven or seven of the top eight are are in-state guys. So that's something else that kind of stood out to me when you look at those back-to-back classes. You know what I've said it before, I'll say it again. Nick Saban's not just great and well-prepared and a hard worker, but he's also got a, some luck that, that, that really comes into play where he arrives at Alabama who needs a ton of talent to really compete at that, you know, compete the level he wants to. And the in-state classes in 08 and 09 were very, very good to him. I mean, there's a lot of guys, Drake Kirkpatrick, Big deal, big time player, and we you know we talked about it last time with Jarrell Harris in the '08 class, who was a highly ranked guy. But Dre was the guy. I mean, he was a guy choosing between Alabama and um, and Texas. It was a huge deal. I mean, he was a he was a big name. You got to remember Texas. This before basically before Colt got hurt when he, they were so involved and they were still uh, you know still a top five program. So it was Alabama and Texas. That was a big deal. And again, this guy, you know, long, lanky, had the look, had the swagger, everything about Dre screamed like big time. And 
guy's still in the NFL. I mean, he's, you know, 10 year career, which is a long time for a cornerback. As you know, it's, <laughs> you, you know, it's hard to stay in the NFL that cover corner that long, but yeah, big, another big get DJ Fluker moves in after a hurricane. I had guys calling me, you know, there's, <clears throat> there's always a story. This guy wears a, this guy's six, eight, 350 pounds. He wears a size 18 shoe. Usually they're way off in those measurements with DJ. Wasn't, I mean, he was six, six, you know, 330, size 17 shoe, just a monster of a human and could move. A big guy that can move around. So getting all those guys, and they all came in and, and, and contributed in some way or another almost immediately. Yeah, Fluker, he redshirted in 2009 because he was just so big. You know, and it wasn't like he was just overweight, but he's just a massive human being. And I remember Nick Saban commenting on DJ early on, and it was just, Uh, a matter of him being able to sustain over the course of a practice when you're that large. And uh, he, he ultimately ended up being able to do that, stepped in in 2010. And then, you know, what we're going to get into with this class too, Tim, is how some three of the key pieces to what a lot of Alabama fans consider to be one of the very best, if not the best Alabama offensive line in in recent memory anyway, uh, came from this class and, and DJ was sort of a, a centerpiece for that. And then the quarterback position with AJ McCarron, another nice pickup from the mobile area, obviously, uh, you know, AJ was interesting in 2009 in that Tim, he redshirted, but you got the sense more and more as that season moved along that if Greg McElroy, either due to ineffective play or injury, was not available. The red shirt was probably coming off AJ McCarron late in that season. And he was actually going to be the choice ahead of say star Jackson. Yeah. There was a lot of people <clears throat> had a lot of confidence in AJ, especially AJ. You know, he, he was that guy. I met him when uh, he, you know, he was going into sophomore year, Mark Barron and them were going into their junior year, a kid that was a three sport athlete, really good. Another guy with that swagger and confidence a lot of people in, in Mobile talked about him. So, he, you know, he felt he could come in and play. The biggest knock on A.J. probably was the fact he played three sports and he was lean. He was a very, you know, going back to that quarterback talk, he was a 6'3", 6'4", bigger guy. But he wasn't even 200 pounds at the time. So, obviously, he had to fill out, which took, you know, took a little bit of time. He probably ended up being much better. He did redshirt, I think. But, um, you know, another guy that came in and, you know, you know, it's sort of been Alabama's had such a good run with Tua and Jalen and <clears throat> now Mac. We forget AJ's one of the most decorated quarterbacks in college football history. I mean, this guy, I think he finished second in the Heisman, too. Um, broke a lot of records. I mean, broke records, won national championships, won championships, made two huge plays. I don't know anybody that doesn't remember the, the LSU touchdown to win in Baton Rouge and the emotions of running to his parents in the stands. So, again, another in-state kid. Another big time guy, sort of, sort of setting that tone and filling in for you know again filling in for the what the 08 class had and where they had Greg McElroy, AJ was sort of a step above. AJ was such a blessing to be able to redshirt him in 2009 because then if you're not able to, the 2013 season doesn't happen with him, and that's the season in which you're referring to that he finished second. In the Heisman and just a couple plays away from a matchup 
with the 2013 Heisman Trophy winner that year, Jameis Winston. How about that? How about Florida State and Alabama in the Rose Bowl for the national championship that year? Didn't play out that way. Unfortunate series of events down on the plains in the late November. That's a Florida State team that had Jacob Coker on it, right? I believe so. Later yeah. Alabama. Yeah, yeah, had, it did. You know, another guy we don't talk about enough, but we will in the future, who uh, willed Alabama to win some games. Absolutely. Uh, you get into sort of the midsection of this list, and it's like a lot of recruiting classes. You get some hit and miss going. You had some contributors, guys like Tanae Patrick, more of a special teamer during his time as a linebacker at Alabama. Certainly, Eddie Lacy was a big-time hit as a four-star, as we talked about earlier. Had an interesting wide receiver prospect in Kendall Kelly. There were high expectations for Kelly coming out of the same high school as Drake Kirkpatrick, but unfortunately, he had, I believe it was a heat-related incident in his very first practice at Alabama. And that was essentially it for Kendall Kelly. He was medical from that point forward. Um, how about Eddie Lacy? Was that, was that a Burton Burns find first and foremost out of uh, uh, Dutchtown high school there in Louisiana? How did that sort of come to be as far as Eddie Lacy in Alabama, Tim? Yeah, I don't think many of the guys in Louisiana really didn't have Burton's hands on them to some degree. And you also see, um, Kenny Bell was in there, and I think Bo Davis helped out in that area, and there were some other guys that dipped in. But, um, you know, Lacey was a guy, and I know Lance was talking about him early on, who loved him. Um, you know, a lot of that back then, the, you know, we discussed the Josh Jacobs story where <clears throat> Pruitt found a guy he really liked and took him to Burton's Burns. A lot of the success Alabama had at running back was because of that was the system. They found guys, <clears throat> not running back experts, it could be Pruitt, Lance, Kirby, whoever, Took him to Burton Burns, and then, you know, obviously Nick Saban really listened to Burton Burns and his opinion. So once that got in the hands of Burton Burns, I know Burton loved him. Um, he came a priority. You know, at first, it was kind of kept quiet, you know, and it, that's normal for recruiting. Like, don't blow that. We don't want to blow this guy up. He's going to be a, uh, you know, he's going to be a big deal. He was sort of hidden away. Everybody was talking about Trent. But at some point, it became obvious how good he was when we saw his film and, um, you know, just, I mean, big kid who could run. He was strong and, uh, you know, against high school, high school kids, uh, you know, they just looked like a man among boys. So um, obviously Burton Burns is heavily involved and always has a heavy piece of any running back getting to know him and being um, there. But it feels like Lance was, I don't know if Lance found him, but I know Lance was the one trumpeting him early on in the process. But obviously Burton Burns was heavily involved. You mentioned Kenny Bell, a wide receiver, also in this class. He was certainly a solid contributor throughout his time at Alabama, as was Kevin Norwood. This was a class, when you talk about the wide receivers, the year after Julio Jones uh, came to UA. Uh, again, about 500, but Kevin Norwood, uh, it took a little while, but I think we can all agree the 2012 BCS National Championship game performance against Tyron Matthew, the Honey Badger, and LSU. That performance alone, especially after Marquise Mays went out early in that game with a hamstring injury, uh, he more than justified his scholarship, Kevin Norwood did, and, and, and was really good there at the, the, the back end of his career, second half of his career. Kevin Norwood, really good. Yeah, I feel like a lot of these guys sort of played like, you know, the role, you know, like if they were a band, they'd be in sync and Julio would be Justin Timberlake. It was a good band. 
and they all contributed. But you had to have those guys. Kenny Bell was slick. I mean, he was a quick dude, you know, um, somebody you couldn't just ignore. There wasn't any just rolling two guys over there and trying to cover Julio Jones without there being some repercussions. So all those guys, um, and, and again, like you said, Norwood. I love Norwood out of high school, and you're right. It took a little bit longer. Um, it's not surprising. I mean, when you have these kids, I mean, a lot of the learning curve is – is dictated by, you know, where you play football. If you play 1A football in Idaho, your learning curve is going to be bigger than if you play 7A football in, at Thompson High School or Hoover because you've already seen college-level athletes. So I think with Kevin, it was a little bit of just having to catch up to the system. You see that a lot in the South, guys that go to smaller schools. So he definitely caught up. And to me, you know, he you know he's one of the best stories and definitely the uh, – Honey Badger, I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody light Tyran up like he did that day um, in one of the most perfect uh, defensive games I've ever seen. Wore the Honey Badger out with the corner out. Kevin Norwood was a hell of an athlete. I mean, he and, was going over him, straight right. over top of him. And Honey Badger isn't exactly 6'2", but still, I mean, he was making some big-time catches. Absolutely. Norwood, I think – he sort of sped up expectations for himself in the 2010 season, very early against Penn State here in Tuscaloosa. I remember Kevin Norwood, I think he caught a touchdown pass uh, against the Nittany Lions, and he did a front flip going into the end zone. And I don't think Nick Saban was very happy with that, but that sort of play got the fan base really fired up about Kevin Norwood, and it was really – not again until the very end of the 2011 season that we really saw him. But from that point forward, uh, he was absolutely critical to the success of Alabama's passing game over those last couple of seasons. Um, junior college transfers, I think most Alabama fans, when you hear that or they hear that, they think Terrence Cody. I mean, for obvious reasons, a mountain of a man, uh, dominant interior defensive lineman during his couple of years in the program. But I'll say this, James Carpenter, when you consider his immediate impact at left tackle for that 2009 offense, and then the fact that he ended up going in the first round of the 2011 NFL draft, is James Carpenter at the top of the list of JUCO guys for Alabama under Nick Saban? Yeah, he's a guy that they popped right in there, and there was talk that, you know, that was uh, – um, maybe Tyler Love would get a chance at that. I mean, Jamie, he's still in the NFL. I mean, this guy's still with yeah. the Falcons, I believe, um, was a big-time player. And, you know, and at the time, Juco, Juco really is. It's true. Juco's very hit or miss. You know, it's it's hard for, for programs to live on that. But Alabama's done a terrific – what they've done a terrific job of is picking w- where and when they need them. Um, yeah, I would say James. I mean, it's hard. To, I mean, I, I'd still have to go with Cody because his impact and blocking the you know blocking the field goal against Tennessee and which was ended up being Nick Saban's only undefeated season until this year uh, I still had to go with Cody because Cody made so many players around him better um, you know freer the identity of the program changed too yeah. with Cody yeah, when he came in in 2008 in a but, lot of ways right Right. But if you're looking like let's compare these two college careers I think James you know would handily win that I mean, the guy that came in, locked down a position, protected the blind side, two years on very good offenses. So definitely, and, and was it had you know had to have somebody step up there to be the team they would be in eleven. 
very good couple of years with uh, James Carpenter. And when you, again, as we run this class down and we start talking about the offensive linemen with Fluker, with Carpenter, with a couple of guys we're about to get to here, um, you know, we know some of these recent Alabama classes have been outstanding where the offensive line is concerned. But in retrospect, when you look at career achievement at Alabama and then also NFL careers and draft slot and longevity and all those things <laughs> this group in this 2009 class I think can can go head to head with with just about anybody anywhere um Ed Stinson coming out of South Florida uh maybe one of those initial efforts down there for Alabama what has become very 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 fruitful for the Crimson Tide South Florida under Nick Saban Ed Stinson was one of those guys that came in, as I recall, more of a Jack linebacker prospect, athletic Tim. And then by the time he left Alabama, he was a kind of hulking athletic defensive end who himself went on to a nice NFL career. Yeah, that was Bobby Williams uh, recruiting him. Yeah, went on, I think he played four or five years in the NFL. I know he was with Arizona for a while, went in the bottom half of the draft. Um, and was a, you're right, it was a big pickup. There's a lot of big-name schools setting the tone in Florida. Bobby Williams was down there. Had to work that one really hard um, to get him. You know, Ed's, Ed's, Ed's recruitment was kind of quiet, too. You know, South Florida kids, we you know, we're, the media covers them and the fans watch them. But a lot of South Florida kids just are super quiet. You didn't hear a lot from Jerry Judy. You didn't hear a lot from Mario uh, Mari Cooper. You didn't hear a lot of discussion. Um, about those guys. Uh, they're quiet. They sort of deal with, you know, they're, they're a little bit more mature and grown. They've seen more mature stuff a lot of times. So, but Ed was that way where it was the recruitment with Ed. It was different because the recruitment was quiet, even though he was a priority for Alabama. So, but again, the guy that come in, you know, when you look at this class, I mean, it's basically what you hope for in every class. You've got high end guys, first round picks, early starters. You've got guys that developed, um, went on to the NFL. You got guys who are contributors, contributors in one shape or form, whether it be special teams, whether it be a big play in the you know the Iron Bowl or the SEC championship game. You got a lot of guys like that, and just as important as you had guys at the bottom who who were major contributors. You know, we're going to get to some of those guys that weren't nearly as talked about as the others. Yeah, we're going to do that right now, and we're going to go back to that offensive line theme because Chance Warmack and Anthony Steen were outside the top 400 in national overall prospects for the class of 2009. And we know what they went on to become, especially where that 2012 offensive line is concerned. When you think about Fluker as the right tackle for that team, Warmack and Steen as guards, uh, Barrett Jones at the center position, Cyrus Quanjo at left tackle. Uh, it's very much a developmental position. Warmack, he actually saw the field pretty early in his career. I think Steen was more in line with what you talked about earlier, maybe coming from a smaller scale of high school football from the state of Mississippi, but in time, uh, very, very good in his own right. Yeah, I agree. Chance is one of the best college off interior linemen I've ever seen. I mean, just, you know, ended up, he was one who was one of, you know, the NFL's got all these trends where, no center goes in the first round. And then Dallas takes the center and all the centers in the world go in the first round. Interior linemen were kind of similar to that. Chance was a top 10 pick. There's also the Cooper kid from North Carolina who was a top 10 pick that year. Super talented guy. 
Um, you watch him. I mean, he's a road grader. There's everything to like about him. With Steen, though, Steen was a guy you, you liked on film because he was just straight up nasty. I mean, he would <laughs> he would take your kid completely to the parking lot, put him in his mama's car. He was a very physical guy, obviously dominating smaller competition. But, yeah, that was the question is can a kid from small town Mississippi um, or from, you know, Mississippi's not huge in itself. If, could they – could he, you know, come in, step in, be nasty enough and mean enough? But yeah, he did. <laughs> he was a good, good college football player. Yeah, let's uh, let's uh, let's wind up this class and kind of put it into perspective. I think you did that earlier in talking about how it touched on so many different areas of, you know, what constitutes a program really being able to sustain greatness because. It did have the immediate contributors to that first Saban championship team at Alabama. But when you start getting into keeping that thing going with the 11 and 12 teams, well, you know, guys like DJ Fluker, AJ McCarron, huge uh, in their roles. Eddie Lacy, I believe, was the MVP of the SEC championship game in 2012. I may have that mixed up. It may have been AJ, but um you know, it's one thing to put together classes that help you win a national championship, but developmental positions like offensive line with Warmack and Steen, uh, DJ included in that as well. James Carpenter, a big hit from the junior college ranks. Uh, it, it wasn't just about getting 2009 Alabama over the hump. I mean, these guys were everything in relation to what Alabama was able to do in winning three and four years. And, you know, as great as the quarterback position has been of late, especially, Tim, still A.J., when you talk about the only guy to win two, and he won them back-to-back in 11 and 12 at that spot for Nick Saban. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we look down at the bottom of this list. There's a bounce-back guy like Quentin Dial who signed with Alabama, didn't make the grades, a hulk of a man. Really good player at Alabama, another guy that played in the NFL for four years. So when you look, you know, again, when you look, you got star power. And it wasn't just star power. I mean, these guys were great in college. It wasn't just high NFL picks. A lot of these guys were great in college, you know, whether they went high in the draft or not in the NFL. And then you did have the NFL picks, but you also had all these guys down here. You know, in five years earlier, we'd have been talking about Quentin Dow as one of the top four or five players in the, in the class, probably um, in hindsight. So to get down at the bottom and I still have guys like chance and Anthony Steen and Quentin dial, you know, just tremendous depth top to bottom. And it's what you want from every class. And I think we'll look over the years. And when we go back through all these classes, we'll see the trends that most classes that led to championships did look like this. You know who wishes Quentin Dial hadn't bounced back to Alabama? I believe it was from East Mississippi. Didn't he go over and play for Buddy Stevens? Uh, Quentin Dial, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. went over to East Mississippi. Aaron Murray wishes Quentin Dial had never bounced back yeah. <laughs> to Alabama. That hit after the interception Dude, in the mean, 2012 SEC championship I mean, game. That guy, I mean, when I went out to, to Clay to meet him for the first time, Again, just a massive, massive human being. Now, there's big kids, and again, I covered it. You know, I covered basketball recruiting, so I'm used to six eight, six ten, or whatever. That's not a six five is not a big deal for me. But I'm talking about bulk. I'm talking about right. hands. Hands were brought worst. His fingers were brought worst. 
He looked like I was shaking a bear's hand. I mean, big feet, everything just about Quentin was was just massive in size. And, you know, um, uh, just a big human and super nice human being. Otherwise, you know, he would be he would be quite the force in, in wrestling or something, which is one of your favorite sports. Absolutely. Well, you know, not so much the pro wrestling, Tim. I just like I like the Ric Flair YouTube promos. That's what I like. I just like to hear Ric Flair talk back in the 80s. That's it. That's my extent of wrestling fandom, Tim. Sunday and everybody's making fun of me for not liking <laughs> wrestling. I was like, man. No, I look, I no, I've out. Look, no, I outgrew it the. It wasn't you, but my boy, our boy Josh Pate came straight off. The oh gosh. Show. Well, I mean, he, look at uh, Pate. I was asking for an eighty wrestler, and you give a ninety wrestler. Pate is dying to rip off that medium T-shirt yeah, at all he, times. You know, he, he thinks he's a pro wrestler. Pate thinks be wrestling at Festivus, <laughs> but we will not. We love Josh Pate. We Absolutely did. love Josh Pate. Hey, you know, and also when you look at this 2009 class, the, the 24-7 sports database keeps up with all-time commits, I guess, based on ranking. And, I mean, you had three of the top seven all-time Alabama commits in this class. And Trent, Dre, they're, they're fourth and fifth on this list. Andre Smith, Julio Jones are one, two. Brody Croyle at three. Uh, four is Trent Richardson. Drake Kirkpatrick is five. And then at seven, you got Nico Johnson. So, uh, some absolute big hits in that 2009 class for Alabama. Hey, Tim, let's get into the BOL roundtable mailbag as we get out of here on a Wednesday. Pretty limited in terms of topics. Really, it looks like it's coming down to just one. Uh, and it's uh, a topic that we threw out there in the opening post, the initial post on the mailbag thread there on the roundtable. You can find that each and every week before we record these babies. Uh, and it relates to a movie and or TV show that didn't strike a chord with you initially, but then grew that then you grew to love as time wore on. What's that show and or movie for you, Tim? You know, I had to think about this longer than I thought I would, because I think I'm simply like, if I don't like it, I don't watch it again. You don't really get a second chance with me. Um, but i tell you one I saw when I was younger, probably, you know, didn't really able to grasp it. But Taxi Driver was a movie that I didn't really, I mean, didn't really make a lot of sense to me as a teenager that later on when I saw it, and I had a, you know, I had a friend saying, dude, it's a class. You got to see it. And you got to. You got to look at it from, um, I guess, a little bit more mature angle. And when I did see it, I do love it. I love the character. I love the, the individuals. I understand the, you know, the insanity, the Jodie Foster role. Appreciate that time period of New York. But and, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the movies like that. So I guess it's a little bit surprising. I didn't just, uh, you know, absolutely fall in love with it. But I saw it pretty young. And um, after seeing it, I mean, it was, a, you know, you got to admit, if you're a kid, that's kind of confusing. <laughs> There's a lot going on in The Taxi Driver. Yeah, it that movie's all about when you watch it. If you try to watch it as sort of a teen or as a younger person, it, it, it's probably not going to impact you as much as if you watch it a little bit later. I listened to a podcast recently, by the way, uh, with Miss Foster, and she said that Robert De Niro would pick her up every morning during filming 
and they would go to a diner and have breakfast and he would read lines with her over and over and over. But what's interesting about that is, as you know, Martin Scorsese, he's big on improv. I mean, he loves to let the actors sort of do their thing. He is not beholden to the script like, say, David Chase with The Sopranos. You listen to podcasts, you read up on The Sopranos, and there was no improv uh, in in that show. Uh, David Chase made that abundantly clear. Do not deviate from the script. Whereas Scorsese... You know, he was all about the improv. But, yeah, I could I could see where uh, Travis and uh, Taxi Driver, uh, it, it might take a few times to to hit. What about a TV show? You got one of those? Not really. I think that – I mean, I was a little slow out of the gate with uh, Breaking Bad, and I was a little slow out of the gate with Games of Thrones. Um, took me a minute to really register. I mean, when you start for me, when you start that broad – and then for me, I'll watch it, you know, I'll watch with the wife and then something will just click where I understand it. Um, and then it just sort of takes off. That's what most of the shows do. Sometimes I never get into the show, but for the most part, if I feel like, you know, I do not mind uh, uh, aborting. I do not mind getting out of that show and making a emergency. Uh, I did it recently with a show called Family Man. On Prime, that's probably a pretty good show. I just couldn't get into it, so I just cut it. So usually, yeah. usually I'm pretty quick. You know, once I once I decide I'm not going to like it, I move on from it. Okay, some of the input on the roundtable mailbag thread. Bama 1055. Uh, he gives us the Bachelor. Don't add him. He says. Uh, episode. My guy is one of the funniest guys on the board, but I've never seen an episode of The Bachelor. Uh, I've seen a few and that's it. It's one of those things. If my wife watched it religiously, I would probably have seen more of it, but even she doesn't really watch it. Uh, go mentioned like this would be cool to watch. So I just, I don't, Uh, I don't, I don't bring it up. (laughs) (laughs) Go Latia on the round table mailbag thread says she actually hated game of Thrones for the first couple of episodes. And then apparently, it got uh, got into it. Cat DL fifty eight. See, that's how I felt. I agree with Tia there. I felt like I didn't really know what was happening. There's a lot. I mean, they start out broad. I mean, you've got you know you got a little kid paralyzed. You got sisters and brothers, hanging, you know, hooking up. There's a, there's a lot to digest coming out of the gate of Game of Thrones. Um, luckily, I'd read the first book, and my wife had watched ahead, so she said stick with it and it did take off but that was one of the ones i was a little bit slower on and then we have cat dl 58 who gives us ncis new orleans which that's um that's with lucas black our kid from sling blade who's a big alabama fan lucas black yeah he is he uh it's on that show c uh what's that c ncis new orleans and he does a good job because he has played I'll tell you what, if you watch that show, he probably says roll tight in one out of every three episodes. He is a very big Alabama fan over there. So. Very big. Absolutely big. Wasn't he a big time golfer or something? Like I He really- likes to, he can play. I, 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 I do believe he's a, a, a above average golfer and uh, according to social media, he's, he's taking good advantage of that redfish population well, I remember- down there. In New Orleans, school, I, you know, Sling Blade. He, you know, he had some of the greatest lines in there. 
And then the next <laughs> time I really heard about it. And that's a crazy good movie. Oh, gosh. Joel Hargrave. Oh, but my he, goodness. I remember he was up in North Alabama playing in high school golf tournament, uh-huh. I want to say. Um, mm-hmm. That's the next time I heard from him. Then his career took off. I think he was in maybe a Fast and the Furious or um, a few mm-hmm. different then obviously this New Orleans show has been a good run. It's a good show, especially if you like New New Orleans shot on location. Was Lucas Black in Friday Night Lights the movie? Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, I think he was. I think he's yeah. back. And uh, yeah. uh, wait, his daddy is. Uh, am I mixing that up? Isn't his daddy Tim <laughs> McGraw? His dad is who? Wait, Tim McGraw. Or is Tim McGraw the other? Oh, gosh. I don't know, man. Those football movies. One of those football movies. Yeah. Let's look We need to get Shannon Terry of Outsider on here for those kind of questions. It was definitely in Friday Night Lights, Lucas was. Yeah. Yeah. And and Tim McGraw was Charles Billingsley. So he was the dad of the kid. Yeah, he was the – Wasn't he the drunk dad? Yes. And he's good. Yeah, the drunk dad. Yeah, he's good. Tim McGraw was good. I got to give it to him. Yeah, he had the blonde-haired sort of rough kid. And Tim McGraw is the real-life son of former Major Tug. League Baseball picture, Tug McGraw. Tug, yes. No love yeah. lost. Driver. Six degrees of Tim McGraw here. We're changing yeah. the subject real quick. I was, <laughs> no, this will connect. It's not really a change. It's a segue, which I just learned how to spell. Okay, there you one. go. They, um, I saw, did you see, I saw Keith Law, who does the uh, baseball draft, the uh, – yeah report thing do you know who the number one prospect i saw was it's al Leiter's son oh wow some former major league baseball player is at vanderbilt yeah. and they had i saw one list vanderbilt had the one two and three ranked player and on this list they had the one and three and of course they've got kumar uh rocker tracy lock rocker the college defensive line coach's son in the top mm-hmm. three i was just blown away that al Leiter's son it's not surprising baseball more than any other sport is a lineage sport. You'll see a lot of sons, Fernando Tatis, Vlad Guerrero, Guerrero. We've seen that always back to Griffey Jr. All those guys. They'll lose. Yeah. You don't see it as much in basketball and, and football because that's about DNA. You know what I mean? You marry the wrong woman, mm-hmm. you're, you know, your son's not running nearly as fast as you were. So, yeah. But in baseball, it's about repetition and also you see a lot of that. I just thought it was weird to see. Tracy Rocker's son in the top three, and Al Leiter's son, who I didn't, you know, I don't follow college baseball. But uh, Vandy baseball, Vandy baseball recruiting is like Alabama football recruiting. You know, they they kind of just pick and choose, and unlike Alabama football, I don't think Vandy even has scholarship limitations. They got the institutional aid and everything else. They just go and and that seems to haunt spread Alabama. it out. That seems to haunt Alabama when it comes to recruiting. By the way, Scott Bohannon's got them off to like. Seven and one, is that right? Seven and one, and uh, got Troy in here on a chilly but sunny Wednesday afternoon, and then go to the uh, College of Charleston this weekend. Tim. I mean, when you look up at that, you know, and I had the only reason I was doing a little research because I like Bohannon, I love what that staff's doing, but man, the the SEC is insane. When you have like mm-hmm. three of the, you know, I think. Three of the top five teams are from the SEC, and then you've got every SEC team, West team ranked, oh. but Auburn, you know, and I mean that's a that's a that's a that's a tough that's a tough road. Yes, absolutely. As far as uh, the movie slash show that didn't strike a chord with me that I initially grew to love, um, 
I, I, probably the same thing with airplane, the movie, the comedy that I was so young that so much of it literally flew over my head. You know, when I was a kid, as I got older, it just got better and better. I liked it. I thought it was funny, but it became classic as I got older and could get it. And I'm with you on Breaking Bad. It didn't necessarily blow my hair back initially. The Wire 2, for that matter. I think some of that, Tim, was I felt like I was being unfaithful to The Sopranos as my all-time number one if I if I gave too much credit to Breaking Bad and The Wire. But I eventually gave in and absolutely love both now. But I will say this. I'm not a big Better Call Saul fan. I've never really gotten into that. I haven't yet. So I'll, t- I'll tell you this, because we're running the same course. I got into Breaking Bad basically season one during season three and uh, did – I tried the first two episodes and just stopped and then got back in it and finished it. And I'd never seen Better Call Saul because I was, I was pissed about Mike. You know what I mean? I already knew yeah. these – Sons of bitches killed Mike, you know. Everybody <laughs> loved Mike. I mean, you know, hurt my heart. I mean, I get what happened, but I mean, who didn't like that guy? You know what I mean? Right. And, um. So, but I will say, I think you'll love not like, but I think you'll love Better Call Saul. Yeah. You get I've in, been resistant. Well, I was the same way, and you know, during the uh, the lockdown, I think I or it might have been two summers ago. I I I uh, binged it all, and it's great. Right. And Mike's in it a lot, and there's a lot of character development. It's got uh, Lenny from Laverne and Shirley, or Squiggy Lenny, I think. That that mm-hmm. has been around forever. Great actors in it. Um, the lead actor's really good. The, the female lead actress is great. The storyline's good. I felt I felt like you did though. I wasn't sure. Um, to me, I was like still mad that you know Mike was gone, and I was like, you're not. I don't want to see it now. And so, but I did win and catch up with all all the all the seasons, and it's a it's a great show. I guess I got to put that on the old. Uh, I felt the way on you, the old to do list. Your instincts weren't really um, feeling it. Yeah, I was that way. I mean, it was just too, as they say, too soon. You know, yeah, too soon after Mike for me to dive in there. All right, well, Tim, I think we're good here. I think we pretty much covered it all. Sidetracked. Appreciate you guys for listening. Absolutely. Appreciate you for hanging out with us there, of course, at BamaOnline.com. And, of course, the premium message board of choice for Alabama fans everywhere, that being the round table. So, for Tim Watts, Travis Schreier, thanking you once again for joining us on the Bama Online Podcast. Again, a subscription, a rating, a review to the Bama Online Podcast would be greatly appreciated. Until next time, take care of yourself, and we'll do this again real soon. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. 
There's joy in every journey.